0: The question who Lear is talking about when he says, my poor fool is hanged, um, will actually maybe start addressing it today. It's a really interesting question. Um, Your footnote probably says he's talking about Cordelia, and you're wondering why it says that. Is that right? Yes. Okay. It says that because someone in the 18th century said, clearly he's talking about Cordelia, and fool is a term, term of endearment. And then people read this 18th century edition of Shakespeare in the 18th century and thought, oh, that's what fool means there. That's interesting. And then they grew up, having always thought, having learned this in in um, second or third form of school, that that's what fool. That's what who the fool was at the end of King Lear. They then taught their students that, when they became schoolmasters. And so it this this um, questionable information got propagated entirely throughout all editions of Shakespeare so that um, when people write footnotes to that moment, they remember the footnotes that they read, um, and they say, oh, yes, we all know fool there means Cordelia and that it's a term of endearment. So what happened to the fool? Well, there's a question, isn't isn't there? Um, What happened to the fool? We don't know. Perhaps he's hanged. Um, Perhaps he's there um, at the end of the play, and Lear comes in with Cordelia dead in his arms, Um, but he's also... um, What's just happened off stage is Shakespeare remembers that he has to account for the fools, so he throws in this line where Lear says, Oh, and the fool's hanged also. Um, remember the end of Merchant of Venice when, you know, Shakespeare is not above um, tying up some loose ends very, very quickly and without making them, without disguising them that well. So at the end of Merchant of Venice, um, Portia says to Antonia, oh, and by the way, everything's fine. I know that your ships are safe and that everything's okay. How I came by this strange intelligence, I'm just not going to mention now. Uh, We have to end the play, and I just have to tidy every single thing up. Um, So um, now in a comedy, Shakespeare, we're we're more willing to accept that kind of very quick tidying from Shakespeare. Um, There's a moment in Love, Slaver's Loss where everyone is talking in prose, And then someone says a line in poetry, and another character says, "Well, if you're going to start speaking blank verse, I'm out of here," Um, and exits. Um, And um, so, so comedy will have more will have broader what are called um, meta theatrical moments like that at the end of um, at the end of um, Merchant of Venice than tragedy will. But you can still think um, that one possibility is that Shakespeare really does have to give an account of what's happened to the Fool, who otherwise just does disappear at the end of Act 3 with the last words, and I'll go to bed at noon. Um, And so he just throws it in kind of parenthetically, um, as people tidying up the ends of um, stories, especially very complicated stories, often do. I don't think that's what's going on, but that's one possibility. Another possibility equally unsatisfying is that in a play in which fool is so important a word, that is, it's not only the fool who is a fool, but it's also Edgar, as I quoted last time, who calls himself a fool. That is the trade that must play fool to sorrow. But it's also Lear who says, I will preach to thee, Mark, when first we smell the air, we bawl and cry that we are come to this great stage of fools, that in a play in which the word fool um, has so much resonance and where there's a character whom it obviously applies to, and yet that character is saying it applies to other people as well, in particular to King Lear, but also to Kent and also to many, many others, and then other characters agree that it applies to them. Sure, it could apply to Cordelia. It could represent insight on Lear's part, um, that the love he felt for the fool um, is like the love that he feels for Cordelia. It feels unsatisfying, though, to say that that word either means Cordelia or that it means the fool. We feel a little bit um, unhappy about, about either of those two possibilities. So it's a really good question, and we may come to an answer. Um, But it's not, the answer isn't an easy one. Although, yeah. Um, I think it's also up to interpretation because I know that there's a film version of the, I can't remember what year it is, but there is a side shot of the character fool that has been hanged. Yeah. It's up to interpretation of the director as well, whether or not to include that. Yeah, it's absolutely up to the interpretation. And there are three possibilities um, for how an audience is going to respond. One is you can show the fool hanged. Um, And then it's obvious what the line means. In that production, it's obvious what the line means. Another is that you can show the fool, as Kazintzev does in his great Russian version of King Lear, you can show the fool looking sadly on at the end, one of the spectators to this terrible tragedy. And then fool can't possibly refer to the fool. Um, And the third possibility is to leave it ambiguous by not having the fool there at all. Um, so it, do, it really does depend on um, the choices that a director or that a company putting on King Lear makes. Um, but we will get further into this question. It's a really good question, and um, in fact, it's a good segue to, to something we're going to talk about in a minute. I just want to pick up on, um, on the rather hasty account of what happens um, once Lear and his daughters come on stage that I gave you on Tuesday. Um, and, essentially, what I want to say is this, that um, what that very opening um, sequence between um, Kent and Gloucester and Edmund do is they set up a certain family dynamic, um, an, important, an important one and one that we recognize that all people who have, who have had parents in their lives, all people who, um, who were begotten by parents, Um, have experienced and that Shakespeare is interested in, which is the dynamic of the child who is in a position of feeling in one way or another oppressed by a certain lack of insight on, a public lack of insight on the part of his or her This is the place that Hermia is in at the beginning of A Midsummer Night's Dream. That is, her father's a fool. She knows who she loves, but her father, who's a blustering idiot, thinks that she should marry Demetrius rather than the clearly better, and we agree that he's clearly better, Lysander. So So, So you should understand that Hermia and Edmund, they're an odd pairing, but they are a pairing. Um, at the beginning, Edmund at the beginning of King Lear, Hermia at the beginning of A Midsummer Night's Dream. Why are they appearing? Because Aegeus, Hermia's father, and Gloucester, Edmund's father, um, treat their children as though they're not full persons, which is part of the job description of parents, but it's part of the job description of children, to hate that about parents, for, to, fi- to hate feeling infantilized by their Parents. We see it in Hamlet. That's the thing that makes Hamlet um, so melodramatic when he first appears on stage. That these adults are treating him as though he's just a me, ch- <coughs> as though he's just a child, um, and they are relegating him to a position of less central importance than he deserves as a full human being. Um, whenever you have parents and children in Shakespeare. Um, One way that Shakespeare will tell you who the parents and who the children are in a scene, because you may not recognize that. You have to figure out, when you're watching a play, you have to figure out who everyone is by the way they interact. And one way um, that Shakespeare will very, very efficiently tell you who a parent is and who a child is, is by having the child kind of silenced and clearly... um, Clearly under understood, as President Bush might almost have said, um, misunderestimated or under understood um, by the adults in the scene. And the adults who, who, who fail to understand the young people on stage are almost always, we're going to recognize, if we're in the audience, we're going to recognize that those are the parents of those young people. If you have a dynamic where you have a young child, Our younger person, a person um, in their teens or 20s, and an older person in their 40s or 50s, and the older person is not quite getting what the younger person is going to say, the audience is is going to know, without knowing how we know, we're going to know these are parents and children. Um, Remember that Theseus does get hermia. He understands immediately what the situation is, but Aegeus doesn't And that's how we would know, even if Aegeus didn't say so, we would know that Theseus was not her father and that Aegeus is. Um, there's a sense in which we know that Claudius is not Hamlet's father, at least not, not in um, social and legal and moral terms he's not Hamlet's father, because he gets him. And that's not what parents do. There's a way you could even say, we didn't really go into this, but there's a way you could even say, we know the ghost actually might, is Hamlet's father or certainly treats Hamlet like a son because he is the character in Hamlet who least understands Hamlet, even less than Polonius. Polonius really doesn't understand Ophelia. Polonius really doesn't understand Laertes. That's how we know he's their father, um, but he actually does kind of understand Hamlet, um, and it's that same situation. This is all skill on Shakespeare's part. It's not that Shakespeare is saying, oh, I have this vast insight into human relations. <coughs> it's, this is a, simply a question of theatrical skill, of being able to identify dynamics on stage, which is the first thing a playwright has to, um, has to be able to show you happening, um, and Shakespeare's just really, really good at that. So the dynamic here at the beginning of King Lear is um, Kent treats Edmund as an adult and Gloucester doesn't. And even if Kent hadn't asked the question, is not this your son, my lord, we would know what that situation was because of the way Gloucester treats Edmund. Only a parent could be so clueless about a young person. Um, And that's... Alas, what life is like. The people, the adults most clueless about one are one's parents. Um, it's a sad but true thing. Um, so, having once Shakespeare reminds us of that and puts us in that mode and gives us that understanding, we then immediately go to a parallel scene in the other plot, where we have a parent come up with a clueless contest. Whom shall we say doth love us most? And the whole idea is, what he's saying is, I'm now going to make you three the rulers and queens or duchesses of England, and um, you will have responsibility for everything I did. So who is most willing to um, embarrass herself by saying something that should be completely private? That is the expression of a child's love for a parent, saying something that should be completely private in front of this entire court in public. So you know what it's like when your parents visit, right? And um, how embarrassing they can be when they come to your room and your roommate is there, um, and how there are like various terms of endearment that they're perfectly willing to use with you that you're willing to accept in private. But they start using those in public. And you know the worst thing, obviously, is when your parent tells your roommate about some way that you always are. This is typical of her. She's always doing this. You must know you're her roommate. All her childhood, she wouldn't clean up her room. And look at her room now. Did you clean up the room? It looks really neat. I know she didn't do it. Um, you've all had some version of that experience, right? Anyone want to say no? I thought not. Um, <coughs> You haven't had that experience? I have not had that experience. Really? I admire your parents. Um, (laughs) It's a very, it's it's a widespread experience. Um, Embarrassment in front of the roommate about one's own parents. But it's not, you know, and then they get pissed at you because you're embarrassed by them and all that. Um, But you're not wrong to be embarrassed by them. They remember you as younger than you are. Um, They think of you as younger than you are. Um, So, that is essentially the situation. Now, look what Lear is doing. What he's essentially doing is um, the kind of thing that um, most, if not all of you, will have have experienced when your parents have their interesting friends over for dinner. Um, You know that experience? I'm sure you don't, but most people know the experience of wondering why those interesting people are friends with their parents. Um, Lots of people have the experience of thinking their parents' friends are a lot more interesting than their parents are, right? Is this true or not? Yeah, I thought so. Um, So, um, and then what do your parents make you do? They make you kiss them goodnight in front of these interesting people. Um, And you're really a little old to kiss them goodnight by the time you're 14. I mean, it's fine if you're alone in the house, but in front of their interesting adult friends, they want you to kiss them goodnight. That's a little embarrassing. Um, That's what Lear is doing in spades here. What he's saying to his daughters is, um, I'm now about to do this really major political act, which is to divide my kingdom. So who is going to gush most about what a wonderful father I am in front of all these people? I really need you to gush um, and to say what a wonderful father I am. Um, And so what... Does this, what position does this put the daughters in? Well, in a sense, it puts them in kind of the same position that Edmund was in um, already. That is, embarrassing father, particularly embarrassing in the way he embarrasses me, his child. And then we see Goneril, with a certain amount of dignity, take this up and say, I love you more than words words can wield the matter, dearer than eyesight, space and liberty. And by the way, dearer than eyesight is another little dab of of foreshadowing, Uh, another little um, little, uh, whatever color you would use to paint shadow in a painting. Um, um, And so she embarrasses herself and gets rewarded for it. Um, Regan, same deal, at least they're in the same boat. But if you're playing them, of course they're going to be rolling their eyes at each other. Why? Because they're too old for this. Um, Even without thinking of them as evil in any way, um, you have to be a little bit on their side, given what Lear is making them do in front of all these people. And then Cordelia is like them, but more so. So essentially what she says is, no, I'm not going to do this. Now one big question in King Lear that everyone Um, needs to come down on, and by everyone I mean certainly if you're playing the part of Cordelia or if you're directing the play. The first major question that you're going to have to decide about King Lear is, is Cordelia right or wrong to refuse to play this game? That is, um, this has been hotly debated and continues to be hotly debated um, by interpreters of Lear. Should Cordelia say, Father, of course I love you. Um, You're you're, um, really wonderful, and I'm not going to, of course I'm not going to flatter you. Um, I'm not going to exaggerate, but I'm going to tell you I really, really love you. Um, But she doesn't do that. Um, So is she wrong not to do that? Or is the fault Lears, who has put her in this completely untenable position, Um, And so what she says to him is perfectly appropriate. Now, I don't think either of those can be right. That is to say, I don't think that you can say that um, Cordelia was simply wrong to refuse to give um, Lear the empty flattery that Regan and Goneril have given him. But I think it's important to see that her reaction is less against him than it is against her sisters. She's disgusted by their flattery as she makes clear at the end of the scene Um, and she's also disgusted by the fact that Lear believes their flattery Um, and that's so part of what happens is she turns her anger against her sisters is also an anger that includes Lear. The play is very clear about this dynamic of relationships between siblings and their parents, which is um, you really can get pissed off at a sibling for the way that sibling is behaving. But if your parent believes what is obviously a lie, then you get pissed off at your parents also. How can you believe him? He's just, he's he's so full of it. And you think that I'm the one? I'm the bad kid? when he's just doing that to you? So Cordelia is doing that. How do we know that this play is about that? Because that's what Edgar and Edmund will do in the next scene. That's exactly the dynamic between them in their courtship to Gloucester. So one thing that happens, this play is, is Shakespeare writing um, at his most extreme best where he has so many balls Um, um, juggling in the air, and he keeps them all going so smoothly. And he has so many different aspects of human character and human character dynamics and family and friendship and public and private going together. And he does it all perfectly. But one thing it's really important to see here is that Cordelia, her behavior is partly a reaction not to her father but to her sisters, and then to her father accepting what her sisters say when she sees right through it. Um, She knows what her sisters really are. She even says to them, I see you what you are. I know what you've done there. I can't believe you got away with that. Um, It's disgusting that you got away with that. That's what she says to them um, at the end of this scene. that, so that's part of what's going on, is that had Cordelia been asked first rather than last, and the fact that she's asked last is um, underscored, had she been asked first, her answer would likely have been somewhat different. That is, she would have probably said something like, I'm not answering you because I want part of your kingship. I'm not answering you because I'm really looking forward to inheriting anything that I can. I'm going to tell you what I really think, which is I really, really, really love you. And if you want me to inherit part of this as my dowry, that's fine. Um, and obviously there are issues going on, but that, that, sh- that shouldn't be how you're dividing your kingdom. That She would have answered something somewhat more friendly. Um, on the other hand, it's also too easy to say that Lear is too harsh to her. Of course he's too harsh to her. But it's not that he has no reason to be angry at her. She does stand up to him, but there's a little bit of defiance. There has to be. She's a completely uninteresting character if there's no defiance in her. There is defiance. And the question is... How much should Lear understand that she's right? And to answer that question, you have to ask, how right is she? Now, what she is essentially saying is, I can't believe that you would think that Regan and Goneril meant it. However, what we need to understand is Lear doesn't believe that Regan and Goneril meant it. It's wrong. The mistake Cordelia makes is to think that she is seeing Lear completely suckered by Regan and Goneril. Lear has something else in mind, which we started talking about last class. What Lear has in mind is, of course this is all about Cordelia giving me the pleasure of telling me that she loves me. I don't care at all about Regan and Goneril. That might be too strong. But in his heart of hearts, he just doesn't love them. There's no indication that he loves them. However, he wants to love them because he's their father. He feels duty not only to them, but he feels duty to love them. And in fact, I think he does love them deep down, but he doesn't know it, which is part of what makes the tragedy here. I think we find that out later. Um, but what if he were to give a perfectly truthful account of what he thought he felt, not what he did feel, but what he thought he felt at the beginning of this play, what he would say is, I regret to say, and I hate to admit even to myself, that I don't love Goneril and Regan, but I don't. I love Cordelia. And however, it's not right of me not to love Goneril and Regan. In fact, it is right of him not to love them. We find out. But um, what he would say is it's not right of me not to love Goneril and Regan. And so I have to bend over backwards, like Gaunt, I have to bend over backwards to treat them equally and not to play favorites. Now, Lear's not very good at that. And he does play the favorite. And Cordelia is his favorite. And in his despair, he even says so. I loved her most and thought to set my rest on her kind nursery. He does admit that he loved her most. But he begins not admitting that. He begins by saying, I'm going to treat you equally. I'm going to ask which of you loves me most. Now, what he's actually doing is, first of all, giving Goneril and Regan a chance, or at least um, making it appear that they have a chance so that he doesn't look like he's playing favorites, um, even though he doesn't do that so well, so we know he is playing favorites. But he's also doing something else. There's another kind of test that he's doing, which parents do to the children, which most of your parents do to you when they embarrass you in front of your roommates, is it's not that they're clueless when they're embarrassing you. Um, They may seem clueless, but that's not all that's going on, I can tell you as a parent. Um, They are also a little bit testing you. That is, they're making sure that you get, that you owe them something, and what you owe them is a willingness to accept embarrassment. And we've all realized that our parents are doing that to us also. That is, that what you owe them is a willingness to say, yes, I am your loyal child because even though you're embarrassing me, I'm not stalking out. I'm not, um, I'm not saying, get out of my room. Um, but I'm putting up with it. Now, I think the best way to understand Lear here is to understand that he knows he's making his daughters put up with something. He's not ignorant. Of the fact that he's making them put up with it, he's a much smarter guy than Gloucester, and he knows. Part the test here is much more subtle than it looks like. It's not (coughs) that he's wondering, "Oh, who loves me most?" But it's he's saying, "Look, I'm about to give everything up, but I have to know that they're gonna that they love me enough to put up with me, despite the fact." that I am an embarrassment. He's much smarter than Gloucester. He's much smarter than Polonius. Um, He wants them to put up with his embarrassing self. And Goneril and Regan pass that test. They do put up with it. They don't like it, but they put up with it. Cordelia does not. Now, what really matters here, it's not that we should say, oh, Cordelia has failed a test. It's not that she's failed a test. It's that... We are in a situation which is the subtlest and most important kind of dramatic situation, the hardest to do, the hardest kind of scene to write, the hardest thing to manage, where the stakes in a scene, remember all dramatic scenes are about the stakes that the characters in the scene are contesting for, Um, whether it's information, whether it's declarations of love, whatever. Characters in a scene, what drives their their interaction is a conflict over something and a negotiation over something when their interests are different. that's standard, any scene which isn't about people with different interests in some kind of conflict engaged in some kind of negotiation where the negotiation may be very brutal, give me your money or I will shoot you, that's still a negotiation. Or the negotiation may be very subtle. Um, You know, I always love that dress you're wearing where the negotiation is who is going to first admit that they're sexually interested or erotically interested in the other. doesn't matter. These are all on the spectrum of negotiations. But the hardest thing is when it turns out that each party thinks that they're negotiating or in conflict about something from different from what the other party thinks. So Cordelia and Lear mistake each other because Cordelia thinks that Lear wants to be convinced by language that his daughters love him. Whereas Lear simply wants to put put them in an embarrassing situation to see how well not even to see whether they're willing to accept it but to remind them that part of their love for him is accepting it so so cordelia mistakenly thinks that lear believes what regan and goneril are saying and that lear really wants her to convince him that she loves him and also really wants her to love him more than she's going to love her husband. Lear doesn't want that. We know, in fact, from, his, from the first line of the play where we hear about Albany and Cornwall rather than about Regan and Goneril, we know from the very first line of the play that Lear recognizes the importance of husbands to his daughters and recognizes that they are at least of co-equal power as he is in his daughter's lives. So Cordelia isn't saying something to Lear that he doesn't know when she says, my husband is going to have half my love and half my duty. Of course he knows that. So Cordelia gets wrong what she thinks Lear wants. Lear more obviously gets wrong what Cordelia is saying to him in refusing to say say anything to draw a third more opulent than her sisters. Um, (coughs) He thinks um, that she's being much more ferocious in her refusal than she really is. But the misunderstanding here is something that Shakespeare is thinking of as a misunderstanding that happens between parents and children. That unlike love, unlike erotic love, unlike love between um, a man and a woman, or between two brothers, between two sisters, or between Antonio and Bassanio, or between Hermia and Helena, um, or between Portia and Nerissa, unlike love between people of equal status, The thing about love between parents and children is that neither side is in a symmetrical relationship to the other side, and yet love itself implies symmetry. So the kind of misunderstanding that occurs in love between parents and children um, is a misunderstanding that he's interested in here and that comes out initially in the miscommunication where Gloucester thinks that by by being kind of crude and boisterous with Edmund, Edmund will see how much he loves him. And Lear thinks that by um, by offering what he offers, just if his daughters are willing to embarrass themselves, he's showing how much he loves them. And Cordelia thinks that by... She trusts her father. This is maybe the most crucial and subtle part of this is that she trusts her father to understand her when she says nothing. She trusts him there. She actually offers him trust. Kent understands it. She thinks he will understand it also. She trusts him to understand her, and he doesn't. And it's that misunderstanding in a relationship of love, that causes things to go wrong. Yeah. Um, to what degree is uh, the problem for Lear? And his scene uh political? That the embarrassment got reversed and less about a personal. Um, oh, it's absolutely political. That is, he's the one. He's embarrassing, and he's embarrassed as soon as it as soon as he makes it cle- as as Cordelia makes it clear um, that he actually is acting like Polonius. He didn't think he was acting like Polonius. He thought he was acting like someone who had the right to do this and um, and was willing to exercise that right. And in a way, they were supposed to, um, by accepting his right to do it, he's not embarrassed at all. But she doesn't accept the right. So she becomes the embarrasser. It's bad to embarrass. And that's what she says to him. It's bad to embarrass people. But by saying it to him, she embarrasses him. So you're absolutely right about that. Yeah. Um, you, you were saying that um, Gloucester doesn't, fails to convey his love to Edmund with this boisterous uh, attitude, but doesn't Edmund say, uh, our father's love has the bastard Edmund as the legitimate and play on that? So he, oh. he doesn't know that his father loves him. Yeah, one thing about, he does know that his father loves him, um, but he thinks, I mean, it's... It, so a more accurate way of saying it is if his father could love him without being an embarrassing father, um, then his father, in a sense, would be deep enough for him. Um, but his father is too crude. So the love that he offers is too crude a love. Edmund wa- Edmund is a very wistful... Well, wistful is the wrong word. Um, Edmund is a um, a character who... Has, a really, has really strong wishes for um, what he wants from other people. So the best way to think of Edmund, you know, in a way, that what, what I'm suggesting now in, in describing these characters for you is what, what if I were directing this play, I would be asking the actors to think about their own characters. Edmund is a character who is disappointed with other people. Why is he disappointed with them? Because they're all complacent. He is in a world of complacent people, and he alone is um, the kind of outlaw. The character that you should compare Edmund to, if you're playing him, is Hamlet. That is Hamlet in, was that your idea? (laughs) Hamlet in, oh, you just think it's too weird. Um, Hamlet in um, act one, scene two, um, who just feels like he's who are all these assholes in this court why are they so stupid um, that's Edmund in Lear there's Gloucester who's just too boisterous and doesn't see how ridiculous it is that Edmund is being mistreated and just thinks oh yeah he's having fun he loves me it's all just fine and I'll send him back to school I'm braised to acknowledge him and there was good support in his making um, there are all these other people in court who care about Edgar but not about him at all Um, There's Kent who um, might be a friend, but is just, that's not going to happen because um, they're on two formal terms and Gloucester isn't making it possible. And then there's Edgar, um, who just isn't a good enough brother. Um, Not that he fails, not that he couldn't be a good enough brother, but the circumstance is such that they don't get to live as brothers. So think of Edmund. Think of the letter that he forges for Edgar and treat that letter as as not only a trick because we get the words of that letter and the letter is is written at some length. Think of that letter not only as, as Edmund's trick to get Edgar into trouble, but think of it as what Edmund would want Edgar to write and what Edgar writes in Edmund's fantasy is you will live forever as the beloved of thy brother, Edgar. That is, then we'll be tight. Then we'll have a tight relationship. Then we'll really be brothers to each other. Kind of the way Regan and Goneril really become tight as sisters when they sound each other out about what to do about Lear. At the end of Act One scene one, where first they're very careful with each other, um, <coughs> and neither knows whether the other really is going to be on her side. But then they find out, no, they're on the same side of things. And there's, if you see this as the story, um, you know, in some Tom Stoppard universe, where we'd, we would get all the different stories of King Lear in a bunch of different plays, the King Lear cycle. If you see it as a story of... Um, Regan and Goneril, what you would see is there is a trajectory where Regan and Goneril do get closer as this play progresses until Edmund drives them apart because they both love him. But there, there is something when Goneril says, I know Regan is of my mind, that's something. Her bond with her sister is something good that happens to her in their turning against their father. Um, It's not, not, oh, they're evil, they're just like the evil stepsisters in Cinderella, so of course they're evil together. That's not what's going on here. Um, It's more subtle than that. Now, they are not the subtlest characters in the play by any means, but there is something subtle even going on between them. Edmund is a much more important and much more subtle character. And to ask what Edmund wants um, is maybe the second most important question in the play. What does Edmund want? Edmund's last movement begins with his marvel that he was beloved. Could someone either close the door or ask them to, um, to be boisterous elsewhere? Um, they're like Lear's Hundred Nights. Um, Edmund says before his last speech when he decides to do some good. He says, yet Edmund was beloved. It turns out he was beloved. He did succeed in getting something that he wanted, which was love from these people who thought of him as just um, unimportant, as staffage. Um, He does want love, and like everyone else, he goes about it the wrong way, which in a way is a very quick summary of all of Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. Um, That is, you want love, but you go about getting it in the wrong way. But Edmund certainly does that. Lear, that makes him like Lear as well, who goes around, who goes about getting love in the wrong way. Um, It makes him like Cordelia, perhaps. Um, (coughs) It makes him like any number of characters, but it's certainly true of Edmund, but the fact that it's true of Edmund tells us something about Goneril and Regan, but it also tells us something about what he wants from Edgar. The most important question, I said the second most important question is what does Edmund want? And the answer is always love. Um, The most important question is what does Edgar want? There is no more important question in King Lear than the question of what Edgar wants and what he's willing to give in exchange for what he wants. That's the hardest and most enigmatic, answerable question in King Lear. It's not right to ask what does the fool want. Um, If we were to ask that question, we could never answer it. But that question, in a way, is a category error. But the question, what does Edgar want, that's a hard one. The question, what does Cordelia want, that's kind of easy. She wants Lear's love. Um, And she wants it from the first to the last. And the way she wants it in the, at the beginning of the play is she wants Lear to understand that when she says nothing, she loves him. And what she wants Lear to answer to that is, is something like, you're right. That's why I love you. But he fails her test. He doesn't say, you're right. That's why I love you. So that, so, he, so he's failing that test. I, I talk about this because once we see Lear fail this test, I'll also tell you something about the source of King Lear. The most immediate source of Lear is a play um, called um, The Chronicle History of... No, it's called King Lear and His Three Daughters. Um, and it's a, an anonymous play that's um, a few decades older than King Lear. Um, it tells the story. The story of King Lear was well-known. Um, some version of this story was well known. Um, In that play, Lear gives a reason for why he does this ridiculous contest at the beginning. It's always, as I say, it's useful to see how Tate changes Shakespeare. It's also really, really useful to see how Shakespeare changes his sources. So um, that play, which Tolstoy thought was better than Shakespeare, by the way, Tolstoy said, well, King Lear by Shakespeare, what a joke. You want to read a really good version of King Lear, read um, the the um, the chronicle history of King Lear the story of King Lear and his three daughters that's a good play um, Tolstoy actually tended to diss Shakespeare because Shakespeare was his only real competition in the history of the world um, and so he's trying to get rid of him but in that play what happens is Lear says to um, his um, his uh, counselors. Um, you know, I really think that Cordelia is not going to marry the guy I want her to marry. So it it opens with the same question of who shall Cordelia marry? Um, And he says, I really think she's not going to pick the guy I want her to pick. How do I get her to do that? Hey, you know what? I'm going to do a little contest where I'm going to divide my kingdom, which I'm going to do anyhow, and give it to the daughter. I'm going to say I'm going to give the best part to the daughter who loves me most. Because all three of the daughters are going to say, oh, dad, I love you so much, I'll do whatever you want. And when Cordelia says, oh, dad, I love you so much, I'll do whatever you want, I'll say, good. Here's the guy I want you to marry, and then she'll have to. Aren't I clever? Um, So that was the original reason for this contest. Shakespeare gets rid of the reason. Um, It's really important to see that Shakespeare had a perfectly plausible motive in his source for this contest, and he didn't want that. He wanted the contest without a good reason to have it because he wanted it to be, pure, to be purely a question of characters' need for each other's love and ratification and acknowledgment of love. Um, and that's a crucial thing to see how Shakespeare makes the plot much harder to motivate unless you think about it in terms of what people want from each other from each other's desires and thoughts rather than from their willingness to do or not do certain things. It's very easy to get a plot if you want someone to marry the person that you've picked for them. It's much harder if all you want from them is a feeling that they love you. And Shakespeare goes the hard way. So Lear, however, we will all agree and acknowledge, I feel sure, really, really, really screws up in a way that's really unpleasant. And then what does he do? He banishes her. And he tells, and France says, I want to marry her. And Lear says, no, that's ridiculous. She should be left alone. She's the, 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 the <coughs> cormorant or he, the barbarous Scythian, or the, he that makes his generation messes to gorge his appetite, um, shall be as, as loved and pitied and relieved as thou art sometimes daughter. That is his viciousness for her is unforgivable. So now look what Shakespeare has done at the beginning of this play. He has set himself up, as great writers do, an almost impossible plot problem, which is how do I give you a character who is is, um, a character that you only want to see punished because of every way that he messes up. So here's an old man who's already gotten everything that he could possibly deserve out of life, who is now in extreme old age treating his daughter with extraordinary and unforgivable viciousness um, and causing her the the most extraordinary pain out of the self-righteous stupidity of his actions. Um, And now... It's my assignment to make you weep over his death. And that's a really, really, really difficult assignment that Shakespeare sets himself. So now let's turn to Lear's re-entry in Act 1, Scene 4. So we leave Act 1, Scene 1, hating Lear. Um, Whatever happens to him, he deserves it. All we want is an experience of, I told you so. That is, so he's going to trust Goneril and Regan and we know that they're going to treat him like crap and we know that because Cordelia has told them not to because she knows they are and Kent (coughs) knows they are and Kent's been banished also. We know this is all really bad and Lear doesn't even have the excuse that Gloucester does of being tricked by an evil daughter. He did it to himself. There again is an, an important difference between the Gloucester story and the Lear story. Um, And now we get to Act 1, Scene 4. Cordelia has been banished. Lear and his hundred knights are at Goneril's place. Um, Goneril is already gratifying our desire um, to see him get his. Um, And then Kent comes in, and um, he's disguised out of his loyalty to Lear. And now we have the first step in the very long rehabilitation of Lear as a character. Um, the most central line, by the way, of the, th- uh, the most central thematic line of Lear's rehabilitation is his own account of himself later on when he says of himself in Act 4, I am a man more sinned against than sinning. That is... Yeah, we've seen all his sins. Now we're going to see how sinned against he is. And that's the account of assets and liabilities or of liabilities for and against that are going to matter. Yeah? Um, In f one Kent says to (laughs) Lear, when he's arguing with him, whom I've ever honored as my king and loved as my father. Nice. Um. Sure, yes, yeah, yeah, he stays, they're both banished, Um, Cordelia to France and Kent to God knows where, he has five days to shield himself from the the disasters of the world, Um, and then Kent returns, um, and he will, let's say, stand for the banished child um, surrogate figures who stay loyal to Lear despite what he's done to them. So that's absolutely true, but let's let's go on with the scene and see how that plays out. So Kent comes back, and he immediately wins Lear's heart. How? By being Kent-like. How? By speaking truth to power, um, which is what Kent does. And this time, Lear's okay with it. Um, so again, we get a sense of what Lear is when he hasn't lost it, when he isn't in such a state. Um, he says, you sought to make us break our vow in Act 1, Scene 1, which we durst never yet. And notice what he's saying is, I vowed that this would happen. Even if I wanted, it to, wanted to take it back, I can't. I, don't, I wouldn't dare to break my own vow. Lear is loyal to his own emotional outburst. Most people are not like this, but some are and Lear is one of those who who is. That is, when you blow up at someone, when you get really angry, what's the the source of anger, um, or what's what's the experience of that anger? Well, it can be something like, um, I am so pissed at you that I'll never talk to you again. And um, some voice in your head may be saying, yeah, but you'll get over it and you'll talk to him again. Or your friend may say, look, in a week, you know that you'll be over this. Or the person you're saying that to might say, look, just take a day or two and calm down, and then we'll talk. Um, And the content of being really pissed at someone is to say, no, I'm going to remember this. I'm taking a vow that no matter how much I don't feel this kind of anger in a week, I still am, am, am committing myself to my immediate experience of anger and not to how I feel in a week. If I feel in a week that I'm over it, I'm vowing now. I'm so angry that even if I feel over it, I'm not going to act as though I'm over it. So we've all had that experience, right? Knowing that, when, that even as we say, I'm, you know, I'm hanging up on you and I'm never going to call you back, knowing that, yeah, we probably will. Or if you call me, I'm, I'm going to check the caller ID and never pick up, but we know we probably will pick up. Um, But still, we want to think that we won't. And sometimes the way you'll commit yourself is by making an absolute (laughs) vow not to do it. And if you believe your own vows, which most people don't, um, then maybe you won't. But you try to commit yourself to your own anger, even as you know that anger doesn't last. Um, So that's what Lear is doing. But Kent comes back. And of course, now we see Lear not angry anymore. And this is the first time that we see Lear, what makes people love Lear is that here this stranger comes in and Lear likes him. But what really, man, and Kent says, yeah, you know, here, who am I? I'm someone who's um, the right age. How old art thou, says Lear, at line 32 of Act 1, Scene 4. <coughs> um, a question that's major in this play and Kent's answer is great. Not so young, sir, to love a woman for singing nor so old to dote on her for anything. Um, that is, I'm in control of myself. I have years on my back, 48. And Lear likes that. Follow me, thou shalt serve me. If I like thee no worse after dinner, I will not part from thee yet. Then he calls for dinner, and then he says, um, where's my fool? Go you and call my fool hither. Um, and um, this is scene this is um, seen the first we hear of the fool, um, then Oswald comes in, and Lear asks a very interesting daughter, a very interesting question: "Where's my daughter?" So first, "Where's my knave, my fool? Go call my fool hither." Enter Oswald, as though he's the fool, um, but he isn't. And then Lear says, "Where's my daughter?" So please, you remember I said to um, to pay attention to that question. Where Oswald exits, um, and then what says the fellow there? Call the clock pole back, and then, "Where's my fool?" oh, I think the world's asleep. So is Oswald the fool? We might be confused about that for a split second, but no. Still, we don't know who he's talking about with the fool. How now? Where's that mongrel? Um, He won't come. Um, He's a knave. He answered in the roundest manner that he would not. Um, And then we have all this stuff about Oswald and Lear. And um, what the knight says is... uh, If I can say so, it seems to me, to my judgment, your highness is not entertained with that ceremonious affection as you were wont. There's a great abatement of kindness that appears as well in the general dependence as in the duke himself and your daughter. Ha! Sayest thou so? The knight, I beseech you, pardon me. I'm sorry to be saying this, but I'm telling the truth. My lord, if I be mistaken for my duty, cannot be silenced when I think your highness wronged. To which Lear replies, Thou but remembers me of mine own conception. I have perceived a most faint neglect of late, which I have rather blamed as my own jealous curiosity than as a very pretense and purpose of unkindness. I will look further into it. Now, notice that Lear really has learned his lesson. Here they're treating him intentionally and vividly badly. They're insulting him and they're not showing him the deference that is due to him because he has kept the name and all the addition of a king. They're not treating him that way. The Lear in Act 1, Scene 1, would have blown up into a towering rage. But you can tell that he's feeling humbled by a mistake that he feels now that he's made. Because here... He's giving Goneril every benefit of the doubt. A most faint neglect, he says, which I have rather blamed on my own jealous curiosity. Remember, we saw that word in the opening of the play. Curiosity and neither could make choice of either's moiety. So I thought I was being hypersensitive. I've noticed this very, very faint neglect. I, I blame my own hypersensitivity to it. Um, rather than anything going on. Now, that's the first step in the um, rehabilitation of Lear in, her, uh, in our eyes, a kind of humility. Um, he's nice to Kent, and he likes Kent's directness, and he immediately sees that Kent is a good guy without knowing who he is. And now, um, what he's doing is he's not blaming his daughter for calculated insults. Um, he's blaming himself. For them. Then again, he says, Where's the fool? Um, But where's my fool? I have not seen him this two days. Now, to begin answering your question, notice that the first thing that anyone says about the fool, the first thing we know about the fool is that since my young lady's going into France, sir, the fool hath much pined away. So the fool and Cordelia are connected in the very first thing we know about the fool the fool also is against cordelia's banishment and feels it more than anyone since my lady's going into france my young lady's going into france where the fool has much pined away and lear's response again is not to blow up maybe if you're acting him a proper way to act would be to have him flare up no more of that but then realize, wait, he's right. And then he says, I have noted it well. I noticed that too, that it hurt him, her exile. Or it could simply be, yes, no more of that. I noted it too. doesn't matter so much how you do the no more of that part. But the I have noted it too, that's important. <coughs> Lear has seen something in The Fool. Um, remember that Horatio, tells Hamlet, Hamlet says "Didst perceive upon the very talk of poisoning and Horatio says I very well noted it Um, noting something seeing what's going on that's the highest dramatic virtue for a Shakespearean character Henry James very famously gave as a um, as a dictum for um, how to be with other people he said try to be someone on whom nothing is lost and the worst thing you can be as a character from the audience's point of view, not the morally worst thing you can be, but the worst thing you can be in terms of how much the audience likes you is to be someone whom things are lost on. That's Polonius to a T. Everything is lost on Polonius. Um, But here it's Lear who this is not lost on. I noted it too. Yeah. Uh, I was reading it seemed like the fool was another aspect of the personality in like, this The fool finds a way for, for it's like Nice. Yeah. Um I mean, he's pining one part and he's pining the other part of it, and it's sort of remaining opposite. And then later in the play he's like kind of talks to the fool as he wants to be talking to himself. Yeah. But the fool, I think that's right. but but um But... but don't be too um, totalizing about that um, because the fool is, the fool is maybe the best way to put it is to say the fool is in touch with those parts of Lear that Lear doesn't want to be in touch with. Um, that's what's so good about the fool is the fool can make Lear know and understand that and remind Lear of that. So in that sense, he's the voice of those parts or the representative of those parts. But it also matters that Lear loves him and a crucial thing about the fool, if, if, you, if you wake up for nothing else in this hour and a half, wake up for this, is that everyone in the play, I like the smile, um, everyone, I didn't notice, Steve, um, everyone in the play um, calls the fool fool, except Lear. Lear, only once and only in a very particular time, calls the fool fool. He calls him boy and lad. That is, he treats the fool, he uses much more respectful language towards the fool than anyone else. Um, he, He calls him my fool, yes. He says, where's my fool? I haven't seen the fool these two days. But when he talks to the fool, he says, how now, my lad? How now, my boy? Art thou cold, boy? And the fool is almost the son he didn't have when he had three daughters, um, but the fool is, again, in some ways, and we've already seen this, to, we've seen, we, or what we've seen is that Edgar is to the blind Gloucester what the fool is to Lear. It might also be just as important to see that the fool is to Lear what Edgar is to Gloucester, the loving son who is nevertheless relegated by everyone else to the realm of madness, and yet is the son that that older man loves in the depth of his heart. Um, so we hear the fool is much pined away since my young lady's going into France. No more of that, I've noted it well. Go you and tell my daughter I would speak, speak with her. Go you, call hither my fool. And finally, the fool comes in at line 81, and his first action is to say to Kent, let me hire him, too. Here's my coxcomb. That is, um, Lear has hired Kent, and now the fool is going to hire him, too. How? By giving him his coxcomb. Um, And the fool begins by insulting Kent, which is also interesting, and also not as simple as it seems. It's not just, ha-ha, isn't that funny? Kent's a fool for taking Lear's part when Lear's out of favor. But one subtle but important thing to see in the next two acts is the competition between the fool and Kent for Lear's love. It's a competition felt mostly on Kent's side. That is, Kent does not like the fool um, so that when Kent is in the stocks and the fool sings a song Remember their little interchange, which is quite wonderful. Kent says, where learned thou that, fool? And the fool looks at him in a kind of Mr. T moment. You all know who Mr. T is? (laughs) Says, not in the stocks, fool. Um, Kent is the one in the stocks, not the fool. Um, If you don't know who Mr. T is, there's an 18 movie coming out. So you should go see it. To really understand King Lear, I think you need to (laughs) see that movie. All right, the question that we began with, um, we're so behind in King Lear, but it's okay. This is all preparatory for what will happen on um, Tuesday. When there's a quiz, I remind you, but the question we began with is, my poor fool is hanged. Who's that? Um, Who is hanged? Now, the first thing that happens as we see is that the fool and Cordelia are um, correlated, since my young lady's, um, the fool hath much pined away since my young lady's going into France. Cordelia leaves, the fool enters. Now we recollect what we talked about in A Midsummer Night's Dream, which is the process of doubling. That is, two characters played by one actor. It is certainly the case that just as Oberon and Titania, Anthesis and Theseus and Hippolyta are played by the same actors, just as the ghost and Claudius are likely to be played by the same actor, um, or if not the ghost and Claudius, certainly the ghost and the player King would be played by the same actor, but it's probably better to have the ghost and Claudius played by the same actor. It is certainly the case that the same boy who plays Cordelia plays the fool. That is, it's not only Edgar and Kent who come back after they're driven away it's too easy to say it's Cordelia. That would be the wrong way to put it. Um, it might be right to say that if you think hard enough about what Cordelia is as an unaccommodated man, to quote Lear, that is when all human comforts and social status and everything else is stripped away. Um, what she, what you get, is the fool. Um, the fool is the person who should make us see the depth in Cordelia. It's not that the fool is, oh, Cordelia in disguise. That's so nice that Cordelia has come back in disguise. No, Kent is in disguise. The fool is not a disguise for anyone. But it's not, it's too simple, but not nearly as wrong to say that Cordelia is the fool in disguise or that Cordelia is what the fool is under the best possible circumstances um, in terms of status and wealth and love and so on. Um, But the fool is elemental. And if you see that it's the same boy, for one thing, Cordelia returns as the boy she really is. And that is part of what contributes to the sense of the fool. Remember I told you about Peter, who plays the fool in the Kurosawa movie version of King Lear. Um, That strange genderlessness, that uncanny eeriness, if Cordelia and the fool are played by the same boy and they were for Shakespeare, that's the experience that you get. Okay. remember there's a quiz. I repeat myself for emphasis. Remember there's a quiz.